la guardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a non-profit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez, the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, suggestions for future sessions, we are very open to those. As we are to donations to our enterprise, please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And there we go, there we go, there we go. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Troet. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And we're picking up wherever we left off, which was on an island. We've done two islands. So this is our third session on the nature of the island. And one thing I want to say is that, you know, I think now we've got an archipelago of islands. This is our third. I think that qualifies as an archipelago. Archipelago, I think, is not an island. No, but it's a series of islands. So this is our third in a series. It is an archipelago. Yeah, and I think the archipelago, in terms of the survivability of the island concept, kind of brings it forward a little bit. I think that the survivability of the island sort of enclosure is um, enhanced by having other islands nearby that are maybe different islands and that one can have intercourse between islands that can provide different things mm. to different to other islands and that you can have a whole ecology through an archipelago of islands you know that sense that you know any structure needs an inside and an outside that other islands with which one is in proximity can provide that outsideness and mm. yet one is still insulated insulid yeah, it's interesting how each of the islands in the Caribbean has a different personality, sometimes mm. a different language. Haiti is different than uh, yeah. Puerto Rico, is different than Cuba. 
each island culture seems to develop its own character. Of course, partly having to do with the imperialists that put their language on the place, but something else, and the, the ethnic makeup, but also maybe just something inherent. Is there something about Cuba that makes people Cuban? I don't know. No, in- totally interesting question. Yeah, it's like um, different polyglots um, form different like tastes. I think one island, you know, in that stream of islands, um, you know, in the mid-Atlantic region is, uh, if that's the right word, is um, Grenada. Oh, uh-huh. Hi. Or Grenada. I think it's pronounced. Grenada. Yeah, Gren- is Grenada. The one we uh, invaded. Yeah, in and that roughly had... 1980. Yeah, and at the time that we invaded Grenada under sort of... it's People kind of don't maybe know, you know, that the rationale for that was incredibly trumped up. And that there mm. was a fairly vigorous socialist democratic socialist like freely elected government you know thing that they just enacted and were beginning to develop and we that's when we came in under this trumped up communist infiltration um guys now this was during reagan's first administration i think it was reagan yes yes and also, we were there to protect the uh, medical students. There's a medical school mm. there. And one time, we, we used to have every year, my family and an extended family of my wife, we would have Thanksgiving in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, for like 25 years. And uh, one year, there were some students, there were two students from that medical school that we went to war to save. And they were complete, like, party animals, you know. They were just like, hey, dude, like, where's the booze, you know? And it was like, wow, these are the people we went to war for. They seem like perfectly nice guys, but, you know, I don't know that I personally, you know, I don't know that I would agree to uh, the need for a war to protect these guys. And also there was nothing to protect them from. Exactly. Yeah, that's the... Sure, I have yeah. a friend. I have a this guy I call my spiritual advisor, Dada Dinesh Ananda. He's a monk in my meditation group in Ananda Marga. And he was there in Grenada after the revolution. And he was walking around Grenada and he said it was great. Like everybody was just in a fabulous mood. And uh, Bob Marley had just put out this album, Kaya. If you know that album. It's a very sweet kind of, you know, one of the later albums, but it's kind of melts in your mind. It's just a lovely, kind-hearted album, and everybody was playing Kaya. It's mm. just, it sounded like a giant dance party, the revolution. Mm. And then but the that's Marines it, landed. Yeah, the Tildemarines. Because <laughs> those Marines, no offense, but I'm not sure they're great dancers. I think they are. They hit the shores, and the party is over. Now, um, Sam, you had mentioned the archipelago, and I couldn't help but uh, remember that in a poem we analyzed in our podcast, Elizabeth Bishop's Crusoe in England. Do you remember talking about Crusoe in England? yeah. A long time Mm. ago. There's a startling image of an archipelago. Oh. And it's it's the antithesis of the the comfort that you were— Describing, I think you were describing it as being comforting. 
This is um, from the point of view of Robinson Crusoe, right? He's narrating yeah. the poem. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll read the short stanza. Dreams were the worst. Of course, I dreamed of food and love, but they were pleasant rather than otherwise. But then I dream of things like slitting a baby's throat, mistaking it for a baby goat. I'd have nightmares of other islands stretching away from mine, infinities of islands, islands spawning islands like frogs' eggs turning into pollywogs of islands, knowing that I had to live on each and every one eventually for ages, registering their flora, their fauna, their geography. That's the end of the stanza. Wow. Ah. It's a stanza that has some power to it. There's something yeah. more- Horrifying, or maybe horrifying, I think is the wrong word. Exhausting about the idea of having to inhabit each island. I don't know if I said this last time, yeah. but it certainly reminds me of Groundhog Day. That movie yes. about mm-hmm. uh, poor Bill Murray wakes up every day and he has to relive the day over and over again for all the eternity right. until he finds love. Turn. I hate to give away the punchline of the movie, but I just have. Yeah. Well, I think it also has, like Groundhog Day, a whiff of metapsychosis, mm. of um, transmigration of the soul, of reincarnation. Mm. I you know? see, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah of that. Uh, I was listening to these lectures once. Uh, you know, I listened to these great courses uh, on CD sometimes, and this was a lecture about Buddhism. And this professor was trying to explain to us poor students why Buddhists don't want to be reincarnated. Because, you know, for most of us Americans, life is kind of fun, particularly uh, students. This guy's teaching in a college, remember, getting drunk, having sex, you know, going to movies. You know, they're like, hey, what's wrong with being reincarnated? And I think that stanza gives you kind of a sense of the Buddhist. And this guy is trying to explain, well, from the Eastern point of view, the eternity of rebirth is a real tragedy that you're trying to escape from. And that that, uh, that stanza, I think, gives some sense of that. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that the path of renunciation, though, of this life is uh, is the fertile one. You know, it's more... Let's try to help each other out so that we all don't have to keep repeating ourselves. Hmm. Rather than each individual salvation, you mean? Um, yeah. In other words, you know, the, rather than trying to escape this plane of existence. Oh, I see. Um, you know, let's nurture this plane of existence. Let's try to raise the common wheel of consciousness on this plane so that everybody is able to, you know, escape, as they say, the wheel of incarnation or karma. Right. That's the bodhisattvic vow. Like, I'll go last into nirvana. First, I'll save everyone else. That's what you're talking about, I think. Elizabeth Bishop referred to herself as the loneliest person who ever lived. Wow. Hmm. Hmm. This is what? In a letter or something? In a letter to Robert Lowell. Wow. Who what was year the was second that? loneliest What year did she, did she write that to Lowell? Because she uh, outlived him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did she outlive him? I guess you're right. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was one of their, one of their 
later letter, so I guess shortly before he died. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact date, but she was um, mature. She was older when she when she wrote it in her fifties, maybe. Oh right, and this is after she, of course, she broke up with her girlfriend in Brazil. Was that well, her main love affair of her life? It was, but her girlfriend I, I died of um, suicide. Oh yeah, I didn't remember that. Well, she you know was ingested too many pills, and they were in the process of breaking up, but trying Boy. to rec- reconcile. Oh God! It was um, a very tragic end for for her. Wow. And then after that, she was solitary, uh, Elizabeth Bishop. Well, she she became involved with a younger woman hmm. when she w- became a professor at Harvard. Oh, she I had a, a younger, a younger girlfriend to whom the moose is dedicated. If my memory serves correct. But this woman was married with a child or oh. and left her husband. So Elizabeth Bishop became a helpmate, aunt, lover mother figure they live um, together or um i don't know and i'm pretty sure that that relationship mm. ended ended up um um concluding at some point oh i see hmm yeah i have a friend i won't give his name but he maybe he's retired by now but he was a professor at uh, harvard and he really hated it he did i think yeah i think maybe it is a lonely place harvard in particular you know, that's just a feeling, just a guess I have about it. I mean, I think it's a good place to go to college if you're young, but it may not be a good pay, place to be a teacher. You know, well, you know, it's not a very friendly scene is the feeling I get. I had a uh, professor there who was um, uh, brilliant and um, inspiring. He, he, I think I've mentioned him before. He was a professor of patristics named Nick Constis. What is patristics? I'm sure you've um, It's um, Greek um, theology early from the early Christian canyon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he um, he was a professor there, and just as I mentioned, and just left. Oh, he quit. He just yeah, like, left he, everything. He's come was, up. He, yeah, uh, he's come up became, a few times. Yeah, he went into enclosure. Uh, he became a monk, like a cloistered monk. Yeah, yeah Athos. He on Mount Athos for Another sure. Island, yeah, right. And he became. I think of him often. Oh yeah. yeah. He became Talk about um, an island. Brother Maximus. Did you ever see him on Athos? No, I've never been there. I wanted to go, as I've mentioned, but I've never been there. Maybe one day. He's still there. I think he is, and but he re- he's returned to teach at. Um, a, an Orthodox seminary uh, located outside of Boston somewhere. I forget what it's called. There's only one. It's the Orthodox Greek Seminary. It's like where you go to become an Orthodox Greek um, priest. minister, priest. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. But huh. he found Harvard incredibly lonely. Uh-huh. I see what you mean. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, with life. You know, relative to that analogy of the bee and the and the dish of honey is, um, you know, if you want to drink the honey, you go to the edge of the dish. You don't jump right into it, you know, and then you get stuck to it. But Mm. I think that, you know, with Harvard, there's plenty of faculty members who maintain a dynamic relationship with Harvard and have some other shtick that they do. 
And in many ways, that's what makes faculty attractive for Harvard is people who are bringing something to them. Hmm. That have a life outside of Harvard, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Right. Like maybe that that movie Reversal of Fortune where Alan Dershowitz, isn't he teaching at Harvard Law School, but every so often he takes some exciting case and the kids at law school help him do it. And it's all very thrilling. He gets outside the ivory tower. Yeah, that's interesting. Dershowitz came, uh, Dershowitz, Dershowitz came up in our last podcast. You did you yeah, know maybe that? the same story too? It was the, well, no. it, was, <laughs> it was the same case. The case was mentioned. But also yeah. maybe I talked about seeing him pathetically trying waiting for someone to buy one of his books and yes, nobody exactly. would buy. And it was initiated, I believe, by Andrew seeing him in the park. Yes. Unless I'm getting the sequence wrong. No, yeah, I saw I saw right. I saw him being interviewed. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I and was lying in bed. His face yeah. was kind of waxen. Yeah, I don't know if he, he had plastic surgery. I think he was made up. Oh, I see. Like makeup had been applied for the purposes of this documentary because it was it was like, you know, there were like two cameras and lights, the, the whole shebang, oh. as they say. But do you know who would be an interesting candidate for documenting is your friend Nick Constance. Yeah. Yeah. He would um, be um, that 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 fold is a super interesting one. I remember when I moved to New York after graduating Harvard Divinity School, I didn't know him very well. We, we had some pleasant exchanges. I would like bother him during his office hours, you know, show up to chit chat. And then one night I checked my voicemail. Um, and this was maybe about a year after I left the Divinity School and he had left me. A rambling nine-minute message. Hmm. Ah. <laughs> it wasn't rambling. Uh, it was insightful, but I was I was touched by that. But we, hmm. we never spoke after that point. Really? Did you save yeah. the recording? I, no, I didn't. I really should have. Hmm. You hmm. never spoke to him afterwards. No, I, I think I no, I did ask him for a letter of recommendation. That was probably why he was calling. Oh. But he. He turned the message into a conversation. It was like a, <laughs> it was a long message, and it was delightful to receive. Have you ever done that, where you call, get someone's machine, and then speak for some time? Oh, I do it all the time. You do, yeah. I mean, I do it as a whole performance, and I think <laughs> nowadays nobody listens, or any no anyway, nobody under the age of forty-five listens to their voicemail messages. And almost nobody over 45. So after about 10 seconds, you know they're not even going to listen to it. And you can just kind of say anything you want. You can like, a lot of times I'm talking on the phone as I'm walking around outside my house because I have a portable phone that reaches maybe 200 feet. You know, it has reception maybe 200 feet from the house, maybe 100 feet from the house. So I'm walking around, <clears throat> and I'll sort of narrate my walk. You know, I'm walking by the Esopist, kind of a brisk day, looking for a bird, no birds around. I'll just, like, kind of babble to myself. It's kind of fun. Uh-huh. Recording is kind of a form of an island, isn't it? Hmm. The nature of the recording, you know, it has a beginning and an end. 
I guess any narrative form, anything that has a beginning and an end is a sort of uh, I land experience. Yeah, I've been texting a little bit lately. I discovered that even though I don't, for some reason, even though I don't have cell service, I don't pay for uh, for service. If I'm around Wi-Fi, I can text people, and people love to be texted. It makes them feel that you care about them or something, as opposed to sending them, an, even if you send the exact same message in an email, it's more intimate and fun to get a text message. And those text messages are really little islands. I mean, they... They they look like islands with their silly little word bubbles, like a comic strip. Do. Well, they're kind of an archipelago. Yeah. Yeah, because you're going back and forth, I guess. There's some commerce that's happening. There's some colors. value that's being exchanged, information. Yeah. And theirs are their bubbles are a different color than your bubbles. So yeah. it's like in an island, you know, it's like, these territories belong to the Dutch. These territories belong to the French. So they have different colors like that kind of. Yeah. And they're also on a left and right bias. What do you mean? In other words, what they write is on the left-hand margin. And uh-huh. what you write has a has a right-hand bias, I've noticed. I think, hmm. you know, that's what how my text messages appear. So and sometimes that separation two, also distinction. Sometimes two messages can kind of glom together like two bubbles that stick together when you're blowing bubbles. Like they're not pure islands. They're kind of a little agglomeration of two islands, but you can still see the line between them. <laughs> it reminds me of the beginning of life. <laughs> Amoebas. Well, the splitting of the, you know, unicellular and, you know, unicellular creature into two mm, and then four and then eight and 16, 32, mm. 64, and then infinity. That's when, <laughs> that's when the archipelago begins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's how the mind works. The mind works like an amoeba, just constantly splitting in half until it floods everything that's why there's so many podcasts (laughs) people Uh just just keep you know thoughts lead to other thoughts they lead to further thoughts they give birth to more thoughts keep going sparrow but i've been wanting to talk about uh new york city because i grew up on an island the the island that uh uh andrew lives on and that sam partially lives on yeah and yeah. uh, because I was living in Wood at the very northern tip of the island, not the absolute northern tip, but towards the northern tip, I was very conscious that the island becomes very narrow there. And I grew up at 3716 10th Avenue, uh, which is almost as far. That's in part of the Dykeman Houses housing project. I lived there from the time I was four till I was 15. And right across the street was a, um, what do you call it, a little uh, boat, uh, a dock with a bunch of boats. And uh, one of uh, my sister's friends lived on a boathouse, a houseboat, rather, it's called. (laughs) Mm. I wrote a poem about this one, something like, next to the houseboat 
is the boathouse. I'm a little unclear. Just to intersect, ju- just to interject for a moment, I'm a little unclear where the dock was. The dock was like, this is the Harlem River. So right. my window, with apartment 3E, we looked out on the Harlem River oh, where there was a giant right. uh, um, Con Ed plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would occasionally blow steam high into the air and make a big roar. And so the docks were one of those uh, slots on the Manhattan side that you see coming into New York from Metro North. Yeah, you could see it. And in fact, that yeah. little, what is the word for the, a whole series of boats, a boat yard or something, was cleaned out by the Marina? great singer, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy singer, huh. Bette Midler. Oh, Bette yeah. Midler paid money to dredge 150 tons of garbage out of that uh, boat yard. What is the word? Um, the, uh, boat basin or boat marina? Boat basin. Yeah, yeah, like a little marina. She, Bette Midler, came to Trinity School maybe about a year ago or a year and a half yeah. ago and spoke about this project. Yeah, she did, did an amazing uh, yeah. series of uh, civic-minded gestures she bought up a whole bunch of community gardens in the East yes. Village. I mean, I didn't even think that she had much money. I think she's just really a good person. Started out singing in gay bathhouses, never lost her sense of what Sam was just talking about, devotion to the collective. She mm-hmm. she did a, immense uh, uh, kindness to our particular marina and also, I think, to Highbridge Park across the street, if I remember correctly. She she didn't just sit contented on her island. <laughs> in uh, she, Beverly Hills, which is like did. its own little island of wealth. And she spoke about that in her address. So hmm. Was she inspirational? Did you find her? Um, to a degree, yes. Uh, she just she said that she had reached a point where you, you, you need to commit yourself to to, to something beyond yourself and uh, she was going to do it to the best of her ability with as you know much of her, her money as possible and here she, here she was doing it mm-hmm. I mean the thing I was sort of impressed with was her shrewdness you know there's a lot of ways to waste millions of dollars to you can give it to Harvard for example you can endow some wing of some hospital where they do operations people don't even need. But she found this very strategic way to use, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, not a giant amount of money. It's like sometimes you meet a collector who's not rich, but has an unbelievable art collection because they have brilliant aesthetics. They knew where to spend the money and where not to spend the money. And they amass, you know, a stunning uh, art ensemble. So it reminded me of that in a way. So anyway, so I grew up really right across the street from the uh, river. The Harlem River comes up the east side of Manhattan, and it goes around the top, which would be about two miles from where I grew up. And then it merges with the Hudson. So, and further south, it's the East River. And you have and, the Sputin Dival right there. Right, Spite and Dival. Spite and Dival, very interesting 
yeah, turbulent, interesting moment of confluence. Yeah. Or, right. Because I or, guess these two, uh, what's the word, um, you know, uh, currents come together. Although I never experienced it. And I was there fairly recently because I have a friend from my childhood who's very involved with the kayak and canoe club at the other end of Dykeman Street. I grew up, you know, even though my address was on 10th Avenue, my one side of my building was on Dykeman Street. The other end of Dykeman Street, the very end, the Hudson River end, there's a canoe and uh, kayak club. And my friend uh, Steve Harris from uh, sixth grade, he is the president of that club. And he took me out in a, mm. what do you call it, a, like a like a catamaru, something like that. It's like two canoes, like a catamaran or two little boats connected mm-hmm. together. These were two, two pontoons. Can- yeah. Yeah. This was yeah. two canoes mm-hmm. uh, uh, connected by wood slats. And we, me and my wife, he and his wife, we all went uh, uh, kayaking or canoeing up to Spite and Dival, actually. We went kind of to the edge of Spite and Dival and back. And I didn't notice these terrible currents. <laughs> the, uh, when, yeah. the, when the tide is coming in. Yeah, the tide yeah, came in. That was the problem. The tide, we got, we sort of, he sort of miscalculated the time, and then we had to fight the tide to get back, and it was kind of a little dangerous and exciting. So you had an island consciousness. I mean, I was very aware of living on an island, and there yeah. was, like, when I was 10 years old, I had a, what I called a junk collection, and I would walk along the shore so it's even though I lived on 10th Avenue, there's the, as you go uptown, there's also a 9th Avenue. So I would walk along the shoreline when, when I was old enough to cross the street, which I guess is around 10. And I would find weird, rusted junk and I would bring it home and I'd put it in my junk collection. I remember this big metal chain that I found because the edge of the of the island is kind of a place where it's not manicured it's not like the rest of manhattan there's particularly back then you know there, there's no uh, kind of government there it's almost it's like a field a in which um sort of accident can happen yeah accidents Plots, garbage uh, tra- trains trains yeah stuff that's kind of extra to the island could could be, you know, harvested there. And there was a big uh, abandoned bus station that would be around 210th Street that mm. I discovered in high school and I became obsessed with. It was a mm. giant building, no door, just a big doorway you could walk into any time. Mm. And a big pile of salt in the middle of it, maybe 40 feet high. And a bunch of rusting buses. There was a period my friend Philip and I got mm. had cameras and we went and photographed in black and white the rusting buses. This mm-hmm. is by now I'm about 15. I'm taking sensitive art photographs of the sort of detritus at the edge of the island. Um, you know, since we're talking to an islander, I kind of want to ask you a question, which is, you know, what experience you had 
of leaving the island, which oh, it seems yeah. to me is like a super important in order to be conscious of the island, you have to leave it. I think that's a, um, you know, that's mm. an, that's a sort of proposition that's intimate to the nature of the island. And I think particularly, you know, what, what was your aquatic experience of leaving the island? Aquatic? Well, when you wasn't... were young, when you were a teenager, did you ever get out on the Hudson, you know, in like a raft that you'd uh, cobbled no, together out of ever, lots of jetsam? Or... It was always uh, kind of scary. The water was so polluted back then. You know, people I knew didn't go swimming. I have friends now, I was thinking. My friend Mike Topp and his wife, they... Um, they go fall, her name is, they go swimming around Manhattan. They're official sort of, I don't know what the word is, competitive swimmers. I think it's, I think fall has like a record of some kind for swimming around the, the entire island. I would not do that. Yeah. Why? Uh, well, I, I just imagine that the, uh, the water is, extraordinarily polluted first of all yeah i don't know if it still is i think it's much well, cleaner andrew you to. gotta you gotta leave the island dude that's just <laughs> you know don't be fooled you can swim around you can get out there oh yeah well i've been trying to leave the island for a while but i'm really stuck. i feel yeah i feel stuck oh i don't do know. Go, you know well i don't know i i, I don't know where where i want to go it is uh, an experience of, you know, being on the island is wanting to leave the island. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, certainly I New you, York, certainly Manhattan, everybody in Manhattan has an escape strategy. There is that great movie, Escape from New York. Isn't that what it's called? Where uh, it's a futuristic dystopia. Manhattan is a uh, prison camp and... Uh, you're desperately trying to escape. I th I think I saw it. But well, I, I have With my my escape my escape plan is uh, well rehearsed in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was living dedicatedly in Manhattan, you know, and after you know these various uh, events, you know, like the towers coming down and so on, one did evolve a, an escape plan. You know, yeah. like what you sure. would do if you know if the you know what i assumed would happen is some kind of event in sort of times square right which yeah. kept almost happening and never quite happening and then making the migration north you know i figured i'd cross um george washington bridge oh, yeah. Yeah, that's and smart. then you know cut over into new jersey because you want to get west because of the prevailing wind uh, yeah i would yeah. um Cross the bridge and then head west, northwest on the long path, which will take right. you. Oh, I see. You're gonna. This is after civilization crumbles. You'll just. Yeah. Take the, <laughs> but in terms walk. of uh, getting off the island, you know, we were talking about the tempest. Oh Last yeah. um, podcast, and it, I was thinking about uh, Prospero's departure from the island. You know, he does have to um, what, drown his books and. Um, I, I think that that, that play, in a, many ways, is about the renewal of a vision or the renewal of poetic vision, moving into some 
yeah, new stage off the island onto some new stage into new some new um, expression of life that involves uh, leaving a lot behind, destroying some things perhaps. Mm. Whether, whether those things are dreams or uh, institutional connections, and for me on a personal level, it's it's been feeling pretty overwhelming. I want to stay here, but I also really want to go, and I'm I'm, I'm lost between the two poles. Mm. Well, I mean, James Thurber, um, you know, had some advice um, that he expressed in an essay in which he talked in an analogy to a uh, beer can (laughs) that in the 50s, a beer can, you would need a um, church key, I think it was called, and you make a little triangular dent the metal, you know, and make a little area that something will pour out. Yeah. And then you need to turn the can around and make a um, similar divot, you know, in the metal to let yeah, the two air of them. in. It has to be yeah, two. you need yeah. two of them. Yeah, and then you're able to drink the beer. And he talked about progress with an escape hatch. Mm. And I think what you want, Andrew, is some kind of stable circumstance outside of the city that you can go to and have reflection, you know, I I do believe if that, you know, within this sort of like bourgeois blues um, universe, I think (laughs) that that is something, you know, that you should have. And I want to try to help you with that. For sure. You have been a help over the the past few years, encouraging it. And I hope it will happen too. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing because that's sort of my situation. I just came back from the city today and I uh, had to sort of struggle my way onto this bus because now everybody uh, makes their reservations on the Trailways bus in advance. So you get to Port Authority bus terminal and they tell you the bus is full. Got to take the next bus. This is the first time that's happened to me. Huh. And I just tr- tried my luck. I know so many bus drivers. Like, God, I hope I don't get this guy in trouble that I won't say his name or her name. But uh, I just begged him. I said, is there an extra spot on this bus? And he said, just, you know, don't say anything. Just go in there. (laughs) (laughs) Did he give you his seat? Did he give you the seat behind? uh... Not his, no, not his personal seat, but uh, he just told me to take a seat. So I ended up sitting next to this really deeply religious Yemeni Muslim guy. Nice. It was really interesting. Did you talk? Yeah, we talked at great length. I really kind of learned a lot about. Um, I learned what Alhamdulillah means, which what I. Does it, what does it mean? It means praise God. Ah. And then I learned, and then I knew what Inshallah means. You know what that means? You know, it means like if God wills. Inshallah. He, inshallah, yeah. He's like he has. He's thirty-five. I never found out his name. He, he kept falling asleep, I think partly because it's Ramadan. And poor guy, you know, hasn't eaten anything since five o'clock this morning. Uh, or drunk water. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's why. He's coming up from Virginia is the other thing. And he gets up really early. He's so devout. He has to get up at five in the morning to pray every day. Maybe some days he admits he gets up at six. Where was he going? He was going to Utica to the last stop. 
Oh, I guess a there's thing. a little Yemeni community in uh, Utica. A little Yemeni island. Yeah, it's true. It is an island uh, when you're a, uh, when you're a Muslim and when you're a uh, immigrant. You need to find people that speak your language. His English was pretty rudimentary, but he was telling me about this stuff. Zamzam. I don't know if how you he pronounced it more like Zumzum. Z-A-M-Z-A-M. He said, look it up, look it up. But my phone doesn't really work. So he looked it up on his phone and he showed me part of a documentary in Arabic about Zamzam, which is the water of Mecca. It's this mysterious, magical, health-giving, he called it medicine. It's this water in Mecca and there's an endless supply of it like miraculously, I guess, can can be enough water for a million pilgrims. I'm just guessing. How interesting. Sure. It's very much parallel to the Frank Herbert uh, Dune. Oh, uh-huh. That kind of sense of Mecca possessing this infinite source of water under the desert that will, yeah. you know, replenish the world because it's touched by... Um, by the divine spike that Muhammad drove into that earth. And it, it praise, tastes great. Praise He's, be unto Allah. Yeah. Peace be uh, Yeah, and it tastes great. And, you know, this guy never t- has, has never, ever drunk alcohol, never drank, uh, never smoked weed. And uh, so, he, but he gets this zamzam, you know, that's the uh, his recompense. You know, that's his reward for his devotion. He's you mean it gets hot. sent to him? Like you No, I mean, he gets or... to go every so often to Mecca and drink this great water. He's high on the Lord. Yeah, right. he really did seem, I must say, he did seem really high on the Lord. And the thing he said that was so touching to me personally, you know, when I was able to explain to him that I was a Jew, was he seemed to understand and he said, oh, you, you go to church today, today's Sunday, you go to church. And I said, no, I'm a Jew. I go on, yesterday, I, in fact, went to synagogue. I don't go every synagogue, but every Saturday, but I did happen to go yesterday. And he said, oh. And then he understood, and then it's like a smile came over his face. He said, you are a Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are cousins. Yeah. You're people of the book. And then we like bonded over our hatred of pork. <laughs> I said to him, yeah, you don't eat pork, right? He said, no, 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 pork. They eat all sorts of filthy garbage. <laughs> the pigs, I guess he meant, you know. And I was uh-huh. like, yeah, well, I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat any animals, you know, but um, I certainly don't eat pork. <laughs> you, don't eat fi- you don't eat fish? Are you a pescatarian? I don't know yeah, I don't eat fish and I don't eat eggs. Yeah. Fish, meat, fish, eggs. How about milk? Milk, I I don't <clears throat> drink milk, but I mean, I I eat dairy products. I love dairy products. I'm I'm sort of an anti-vegan. I don't know if I've talked about this here. Like I secretly like ridicule the vegans. <laughs> you know, it's funny. One of the things I was going to talk about was I was talking to my friend Becca the other day, and she is lactose intolerant. Why is she lactose intolerant? Because she went to the University of Hawaii. And for like years, she didn't drink milk because milk cost 
$8 a quart or something like that, some crazy amount of money, because she was on an island that doesn't produce milk, so it has to be imported. So her body got out of the habit of digesting milk. This is part of the inherent nature of an island, is that you are isolated and often you have to import food. So, except for fish sometimes. So that that's, uh, sort of just happens to fit into our conversation about uh, milk. When I was um, recently on the island of Oahu, um, I was told by someone who seemed like he knew that if there were any sort of um, disaster that wiped out the shipping routes, that there would only be enough sustenance for two days for the population. Wow. wow. No. Yeah. That's a great. Super uh, interesting. It's a Just, great uh, uh, factoid, even if it's untrue. For two days, um, roughly. Because, you know, there are a lot of people there. A lot of people in Honolulu. Mm. A lot of people on that interesting. island. And you mean that the ratio of human habitation relative to the resources the of the island's just in terms of food production, as they say, yes. two days way out of whack. Two days, way out of two days. That you know, if there was a tsunami, for example, mm. um, or just you know something that wiped out any ability to get food there um, for longer than a week, there it would be a humanitarian crisis very quickly. Mm. And mm. and I I mean, uh, since we were kind of discussing imperialism. In terms of Grenada, I'm just guessing that there's obviously a lot of productive land in Hawaii, but I suspect that it's being used for plantations for export for pineapples and um, coconuts or something. And, you know, if they had to be self-supporting, they might be a little better able to do it, but the imperialistic capitalists have decided this is the best use of the island is to produce these cash crops. Yeah, some of the islands are more fertile than others. I think Oahu doesn't have much. Um, I do know that along the lines of what you're saying, Sparrow, that the Dole Corporation, I think, um, owns a great deal of that island. And of, of Oahu. Yeah, of Oahu, and it um, grows pineapples and other fruits, tropical fruits, and I'm sure that the vast majority of it is, is sent off the island. Yeah. That's and nice. I uh, eat lately a lot of it. I tend to eat it because the food pantry often has pineapple, canned pineapple, oh. in in its own juice, no sugar added, and... Uh, Compared to these pineapples we had in Mexico, they're barely uh, edible, but compared to normal American food, they're kind of fun, and they're free from the food pantry. So, I mean, um, broadly speaking, Andrew, do you think that maybe um, if the if Earth is an island, um, you know, which is a reasonable proposition? Do you guys think that the ratio at this juncture relative to human population and what the Earth can bear is out of ratio, is out of whack? Well, I, was, I would you say... Know, um, similar to, you know, Hawaii having a two-day window? 
Yeah, I was reading this book recently. Here it is, actually. It's called The Story of More. Wow. How We Got to Climate Change and Where We Go From Here by Hope Jarheen. Um, mm. And it's all about um, resource economics and just the uh, unsustainability or the insustainability of mm. where we, we are right now in terms of uh, a global population. And um, she thinks about this question in the temporal frame of her life. She was born in, I believe, 1969. Mm-hmm. So she um, charts population growth and resource economics from from 1969 to the present. This was published just a few years ago. And mm-hmm. that very much is her, her thesis that it's, you know, um, it can't be sustained. That, that, that this is just, it's a trajectory that's going to end in an apocalyptic place. Uh-huh. She doesn't have any solutions. Um, I haven't finished reading it. Mm. Um, right. Usually the last chapter. I think few. she she does argue not so much for policy solutions, but more um, consciousness of the issue, education, mm. um, more thought about conservation, limiting waste. Um, yeah, it's certainly easy to see uh, apocalyptic uh, futures. That's, uh, I mean, I've noticed, I don't know if I said that here, like I've noticed all my friends believe the world's ending, but they all have a different scenario. So, you know, some uh, see uh, fascism, some see global warming, uh, some see nuclear war because of Russia and the Ukraine. She she focuses on um, wealth disparity, the fact that um, mm. the enormous consumption of food and fuel by just uh, the top 10 percent uh, is actively threatening Earth's ability to produce the basics of life for the other 90 percent. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I mean, my guru said, I believe, and you know, it's one of these quotes you see a lot in my group that I think is a real valid quote where he said something like, the earth has enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. Hmm. And uh, I think maybe uh, if everyone lived simply, there might be uh, an easy solution to this. I mean, my personal feeling that, is... Father Sparrow, just to interject, that is a great... Um, we should put that in neon lights. That's a very uh, good saying. Oh, yeah, you think so? I think yeah. it's very catchy. Yeah, it's got a nice. Yeah, it's, it rhymes. Yeah, it is. It's a great mantra. Yeah, and it seems possible. I mean, certainly, you know, in our group, people are encouraged to live pretty simply. It's possible to do. I mean, some of my friends, you know, who are kind of obsessed with this kind of question, point to me as like a great exemplar of living simply and i mean i don't know how much i am but compared to average americans i i do i guess i see you that way spare i was just um uh, your ears may have been burning i was um uh, i was um complimenting you to a friend and i said that you were someone who didn't have to um pay a lot of money or participate in the transactional economy to to um to buy who you are Oh, I see. Oh, that's touching. Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm just thinking today about why. Oh, yeah, I was talking to my friend Josie the other day in front of the Museum of Illusions, which is this ridiculous little tourist trap museum on 14th Street and 8th Avenue. I was just getting ready to take the subway back to my dad's house. And this guy came up to me and Josie and offered us a Danish. He'd been eating somewhere. He had an extra Danish and he wanted to give it to us. And, um, you know, I'm often mistaken for a homeless person. But usually when I'm with a friend of mine who's kind of normal looking, <laughs> the two of us are not together mistaken for a two homeless people, but apparently we were. So I've been thinking a lot about, well, why do I look homeless? Partly because I don't want to dry clean my jacket. I think it's too stained. It's It seems like a waste of money. It's kind of toxic. It's so stained that it probably won't even make any difference. You know, and what's so bad about having a jacket that's a little dirty? I mean, why does everybody's Clothing has to be so damn clean. I don't see the necessity of that. How was the Danish? We didn't take it. <laughs> we were both startled. Josie is uh, gluten-free. I don't eat refined sugar. Plus, when a guy just kind of lunges at you and offers you a Danish, you immediately <laughs> are insulted. <laughs> and, even I, with my simple life, I was just like, no thanks. You know, I was, plus he had a Russian accent or some kind of accent, and he seemed kind of gruff. I think he was kind of embarrassed. So the whole thing was kind of, you know, in front of the Museum of Illusions, no less. Right. You know, I do feel, Sparrow, that you are exemplary of, you know, a rich, simple life. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you could do like plus garden or some shtick like that, but mostly mm. exemplary of that. But I would say that the one aspect of your life <laughs> in which I feel really would require m much broader um, in um, articulation, um, insemination of is the concept of like song. You know, oh. it's that what holds your life together would hold spare, uh, Violet's life together, um, you know, in that island that you've formed of, you know, what you guys are with your daughter, you know, also is an aspect of song is mm -hmm. like making things. It's reintroducing to people their capacity to connect with their um, poetic, you know, making nature. You mean the fact that we have a band, like? No, no, no. I just mean, like, in terms of, you know, as a planet, you know, one very useful um, meme or thing that one could introduce into that um, hmm. um, material is just the idea of living simply and making things, you know, making song. Mm -hmm. Making, you know, which can be broadly interpreted. Making poems. Definitely. Yeah. You know, Poesis. making works of art. Um, you know. And um, of, of doing that, you know, in collaborative um, structures, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that is, um, and to disconnect from, you know, really disconnect from money. 
Yeah, and uh, yeah. I've noticed, uh, Sparrow, you're getting a lot of compliments tonight. Jeez. Yeah, I'm sure I'm, uh, what's the word, uh, you know, secretly somehow eliciting them, you know, because it is. No, uh, I, I started it by complimenting myself and saying, well, many of my friends tell me that I'm the greatest of uh, simple livers. So, I mean, uh, you know, you're just agreeing with me about how mm -hmm. great I am. I was just thinking of the first chapter of Walden, right? Economy. And you know, we've talked about it before, I know, in the podcast. But, uh, you, you know, you, you can do a fair amount with uh, less than you think. I mean, there are ways to distance yourself from money and to, you know, to share and barter and um, pool resources. What, what I like about um, Sparrow's life, as, as he's described it at least, is that uh, you've, uh, in addition to um, doing things that don't, being someone who doesn't require a lot of um, uh, payment, right, uh, mm. transactionally, um, you've uh, formed your own archipelago of mm. human relationships mm. independent of uh, institutions. And I, 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 or at least uh, independent of um, traditional institutions. And I, I think that's hard to do. And you know who else has done that? Maybe in a more normative, if that's the right word, way is George Quasha. Oh. Uh, I just think it's cool how you put together your own university of, of friends and fellow artists. And, hmm. um, but there's a network there. I don't know how thick it is. Hmm. But it's it's present. It seems to sustain you and uh, give you you know people you know and share with and collaborate with and yeah, it's funny. My friend Paul McMahon, who runs the mothership in uh, Woodstock and lives there, he was saying the other day he wants to start this university, the Woodstock University, this summer, where people are teaching courses on his porch. And he asked me if I would do it. I said, of course, I'll do it. <laughs> Anybody asked me to do anything, I always do it. Particularly if there's no money involved. Because I am a little bit phobic about money. I like money, but I uh, don't seem to have the talent for making it. So it seems to work out somehow. E either way, I somehow survive. Didn't we hear a long time ago that money is the root of all evils? We heard that, what is it? The love of money, right, is the root of all evil. Isn't oh, that, I thought it was just money itself. People people misquote that. Isn't that right, uh, but money, Andrew? Don't I, you I know I believe, it? though, that there's something, um, you know, that money and that money and evil have a weird uh, symbiosis. Mm. It seems that way. I, I don't, I mean, I think Peter Lamborn Wilson kind of believes that money is some kind of demonic principle that was introduced into the human race and corrupted it, sort of destroyed it. But I'm not sure that I, you know, there's that great line in uh, Naked Lunch where um, Burroughs says something like, uh, the human virus has been isolated and can be cured, something like that. <laughs> And I think that for Peter, money is the is the human virus that it comes into the world and starts replicating itself. Itself, it wants to make more of itself, and it enslaves people. I, I'm not sure that I believe that. I, I don't particularly. I mean, I am a little bit 
more of a Marxist, I think, that Marx talks about capital and how capitalism works. And he's, I don't know if he would call it evil, but he thinks that uh, there's, it exploits people. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't think communism is possible until there's a revolution of human consciousness in which, you know, you don't want what you have for your children. You don't want you know, to leave it to your children, sort of, Well, it requires a certain um, egalitarianism, a certain um, evolution of, of uh, agape mm-hmm. um, that most people just aren't capable of at this juncture in our evolution, you know, if we're yeah, allowed to I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know what would. I think there is a kind of a mysticism, actually. The other day I went to this demonstration, maybe a week ago, last uh, Saturday, the week before Saturday, that I'm friends with the Revolutionary Communist Party, and they're starting this new movement, a kind of direct action movement to protect a woman's right to abortion. So they started some sort of front group, I forget what they call it, and they have these demonstrations once in a while, and I was in the city, so I thought I'd go, because I I have a friend there, my friend Connie, I really love, and I kind of love the Revolutionary Communist Party, I think they're kind of deluded, I think they're a cult, I mean, I have certain problems with them, but um, I love them, so I went to this, and I think what they... And it was fun, you know, it was a little too loud, you know, all these lesbians screaming into microphones and the sound system was really good. Like I had to almost go like a block away before I could like (laughs) my ears could handle it. And then at the end, they, they had a march down Broadway. And so suddenly the lesbians stopped shouting and then these like disoriented hippies came to the microphone and they started teaching everyone that song by john lennon power to the people this song is not very hard to learn but they uh, acted uh, as if it was like uh, they were teaching you a cantata uh, you know, to the people power to the people right on that's the one line you got to kind of learn <laughs> <laughs> and these hippies they kind of mumble i like them a lot better they're kind of shy mumblers. And then I was part of the demonstration. What is my point? I remember now that the Revolutionary Communist Party had this kind of mystical belief that when the revolution comes, that will change the consciousness of everybody. I mean, yeah. that's the sense I get from them. They don't precisely say it, but I think my father used to tell this joke. I don't know if I've told it to you, where some socialist is given a speech and he says, come the revolution, everyone will have strawberries and sour cream. And then there's a voice from the back of the auditorium. But I don't like strawberries and sour cream. And the guy says, come the revolution, you'll like strawberries and sour cream. <laughs> Very accurate uh, joke that, you know, that my father's telling really against himself. <laughs> Sam, you were saying, you were saying that the goal, that bodhisattva ideal, right, mm. is to um, turn to one another in the spirit of compassion and and help or open or help people get over things or I forget the language that you used. 
But were you thinking about that as uh, carried potentially by the metaphor of the archipelago or islands? Uh, hmm. Uh, was that definitely maybe that is yeah, something okay. I wanted to hit that note because um, I thought it would tie up a lot of the, the strands today. Oh, I see. Yeah, I liked how we moved into m- morality, geography to morality. I thought it was kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, to be frank, I mean, we I, I agree with the thesis of um, the author of that um, book you cited, uh, Andrew. Oh, the uh, the story of more. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, we're all living in a dream world. I feel like we're living in that. You know, I did this work in dot com. Uh, you know, after the dot com thing was over, and I feel like the same way. Like this kind of, we're all living in a dream world because mm. the uh, the the arrows are all pointing toward catastrophe. Yeah. It does feel that we are rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I, I agree. And it's, it's very frustrating politically because, you know, there really is a majority, maybe a slightly slim majority, but a majority of people in the USA are serious about addressing at least global warming and some of the inequities of the system, the wealth gap. And but politically, it's impossible because of the way that reactionaries who set up this country made it so that you need a like a super, super majority like, you know, Biden won by seven million votes. But basically, he didn't win the Senate. And and, you know, something like 38 percent of the people vote in these assholes in the Senate and they're intransigent. So. You know, we, you need you need a massive percentage of people to to, you know, it's just frustrating that we have the majority and we can't implement it because it's not a real democracy. You see what I'm saying? Completely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Electoral College has to be uh, abolished. But also the Senate. Because the archaic Senate. racist structure. Yeah. Electoral right. College is a racist, um, you know, cage. Um, and it's un, you know, it should be take, it should be eliminated. It's but ridiculous. the Senate is, is just as bad because the, the intellectual Senate... capital of the of the West and East coasts, you know, is what drives this country. Mm. Um, and to have that um, dynamic be squashed by this um, ridiculous system is um, is abhorrent. Mm. And we'll, you know hasten the end of uh, life as we know it. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm still waiting for a miracle myself. Not that I uh, have any... Oh, well, I, I think I've said this many times. I just... I'm just hoping that bacteria are going to save us. <laughs> bacteria and or, like, um, you know, the um, uh, extraterrestrial life will suddenly oh, say, yeah, okay, guys, and they're getting closer and closer. Like the, the government said, yes, there are UFOs like that happened like a year ago. It's like the first time it happened in the history of the world. And some of the footage they released was really quite captivating. Yeah, I saw I saw some of it. I saw the, some of those crazy dancing lights in the sky. I mean, I don't know what the hell it is, but it um, it does 
could just be secret government projects, but whatever it is, one hopes that it's benevolent and going to save us. <laughs> or, an, or a visit from the future. Yes. Yeah, that's a big, uh, that's one of the big theories. Or they're from another dimension. I don't know. I listen to this crazy show at night, uh, you know, uh, America coast to coast. And now you're not supposed to say they're, they're from another planet. That's like, it's more uncertain than that. Wow. They're, they're from something, some other dimension. Island. Reality. Some other island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Islands in the stream. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.